Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Hey, everyone. Jeremy Scheinwald here with another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Our podcast is produced by, shocker, Venture for America, a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and thus help revitalize American cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. VFA's had some notable successes, like Brian Rudolph, a Detroit-based fellow who launched Bonza Pasta, which is now available in many large grocery chains. Brian was actually a great guest on the show as well. To learn more about Venture for America and to support our work, you can visit VentureForAmerica.org. As I always note, I've been involved with VFA since its inception, and I'm a huge advocate. I wish it had been around when I graduated many years ago. Instead, I launched Mission Driven Group. Check out my firm at missiondrivengroup.com. And please remember to like our show, the VFA podcast, Smart People Should Build Things, on iTunes. And you can now follow me on Twitter, at Jeremy Scheinwald. Pretty straightforward. My name, Jeremy Scheinwald. I noted, I saw that Twitter uh, finally leveled off in terms of its subscriber growth. So uh, I decided to help them out and I joined Twitter about a week and a half ago. So become my follower, I think is what they call it on Twitter. There you go. You can see how, how much of a tweeter I am. Um, today's guest is Chris Webb of Chow Now. Chris was a Wall Street trader for a decade before making an investment in a restaurant, Tender Greens, which proved to be fortuitous. Through his experience at Tender Greens, he gained insight into pain points of restaurateurs and launched Chow Now, which is an online ordering system built for your brand. So your brand gets customer-facing branded apps, a back-end system, and customer analytics services, and more at what seemed to me to be a very reasonable fee. You can listen to the show to hear the, the numbers uh, from Chris directly. In just a few years, Chow Now has signed up thousands of restaurants, and it now processes more than $125 million in orders each year and growing. It's an amazing story, and I'm thrilled to have Chris on the show to tell it. So, Chris, thanks so much for, for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I looked into your background. Um, you started your career, I, I think, 2002 uh, at Bear Stearns? Yes. I, uh, I had an internship when I was 18 at Oppenheimer in L.A., and the group I was with uh, moved, and I think the group was roughly about 10 people, and of which six moved which created an opening, and so at 19, I, I took a full-time job at Bear Stearns. And so this, this is, like, still, you know, obviously 
pre-bust and like you know that's a big deal like Bear Stearns 2002 you know this is like careers are made there and I mean who could have ever, ever imagined Bear Stearns would, would, would be no more only you know what six seven years later but um, did you imagine yourself as like a, a, a financial lifer so to speak I worked there and I, and I worked at other investment banks later on primarily for one reason it's just my love of the market I, I got into it in high school uh, when you take econ class in high school and you have the stock picking project where you team up with people and you pick five, six stocks and track it over the course of the semester. And something about that really spoke to me. I, I just loved it. And from there on, I was tracking the market. And you know, obviously, a teenager didn't have much money, but I just loved it, which is the primarily, primary reason I got uh, got the internship at, uh, internship at Oppenheimer. I Again, I had no experience. I was 18. Also, I wasn't going to college at the time, or I was going to JC classes locally. And, and so I remember going for the interview and being asked the question, which is a fairly kind of generic, cliche question of like, hey, what do you want to do in five years? And I told him, I don't know, but I love the market. and I want to do something with it. And I, I, he told me later on that that's the reason I got the job is because I went in there just kind of open ended, knowing I wanted to learn where everyone else had come interviewed from USC and UCLA. And everyone was so set on what they're. I'm going to go into iBanking. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to run this iBanking group. And I didn't know. I mean, I just wanted to be around the market and learn. And so he's like, "Yeah, we'll give you a shot." And so you were there for you were there for ten years, and, and it was like obviously a very eventful ten years where, the you know, such a huge boom and such a uh, historic. Bust, but you made it through. You made, you made it through the other side, I guess, with, with Lehman, which didn't... You you made it through, and Bear didn't make it through, and Lehman didn't make it through, and then you made it through with, with RBC, where we were talking earlier, I actually spent a year in, in 2004. Um, and after all of that, you know, making it through the other side, all the herd being culled, like, did, did people think you were crazy for, for leaving after the worst of it? And did you think you were crazy? No, I, I left for a couple of reasons. I left... Part of it because I was in New York. So to kind of recap the, the decade or so that I worked in finance. Uh, so started off at at uh, Bear Stearns, as, as just talked about in LA. And again, this is right around 2002, 2003. And a couple of years in, I realized that if I really want to understand the market and get good at, at trading and understanding it, I'd have to move to New York. And so I transferred with Bear Stearns to the Bear Stearns office here in New York at 383 Madison, I believe. And I was there for about six months, and I couldn't find a, a kind of a home within the, the company. Met a lot of friends, worked on various floors, doing various things. And while I was there, I met someone who had just come from Lehman and said, hey, you know, I know you're kind of looking for a place here. Uh, go talk to my friends over there. And, and I did, and ended up getting a job. I worked at Lehman all the way to the end. I was actually technically an employee of Barclays, who bought Lehman um, for one day. Um, towards the end, I... I wanted to get more and more into trading over the course of those 10 years i did various things in finance i worked for a very high net worth um, money management group that ran its own portfolio and that's where i learned fundamental analysis and kind of basic stock picking things on that side and then i went into institutional equity sales so working with local hedge funds here in new york city representing lehman and and selling various products to them Uh, and then i got more into trading and i actually Again, the only reason I ever did this is because I just love the market. I love trading. Um, and there was, a, I'll say for loophole, I get probably the right term, that you can't trade stocks. You can't, well, you can trade stocks. You can't, you have to hold any position when you work in an investment for at least 30 days, which for a number of reasons, but one reason is to prevent insider trading. Um, the one loophole that I found is that you can trade futures. 
because if you can trade futures, obviously, if you know any inside information, it's this kind of macro geo, you know, politics kind of stuff that no 25 year old's going to know and have access to. <laughs> and so I was able to trade futures and I actually did pretty well. And I was trading gold futures and S&P mini futures and kind of all these things. And I love the way that they traded and they were around the clock. And so I could put positions on and track them at, at my apartment overnight. And I started making more money doing that than I did for my salary. And that's what got me deciding that, hey, I should probably leave this position here. And so I started applying. And so I applied for a job on one of the prop trading desks at RBC about two months prior to Lehman going under. So I basically had a position waiting for me as as Lehman went under. And actually, I had given my two weeks, but a week prior to Lehman going under. Mm. And I said, don't worry, I'll be around. I didn't <clears> think it was going to collapse that quickly. I mean, at the end, it would just unfolded in a matter of days. Uh, and then I told my boss at the time, like, hey, there's 10,000 people pretty much out of a job. Like, I need, and I have a job waiting for me. I need to take it. So I stayed around for a few more days and then ultimately uh, jumped to RBC. But it's, it's interesting the way you t- you're talking about, like, the love of the market. And, 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 you know, people can't see the sincerity. There's, like, a smile <laughs> on your face. It reminds me of a friend of mine who, uh, an acquaintance of mine who was in the NFL. And, like, he's still, it's, like, been years. And he talks about, like, game day. You know, like, he's, he, he, it's like you can see that it's something that's okay. totally, uh, you know, ingrained in him. And something that, like, he has a feel for that I could never, you know, ever appreciate. I'm curious if, like, you know, is there just a part of that being on the desk that, I don't know, adrenaline that you miss? Or are you like, eh, that's another life. I'm an entrepreneur now, and I, 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 my adrenaline still rushes at chow now. So the, the market's been somewhat boring from a trading perspective over the last number of years. It's gone up, and it's had you know, a great run from 2009 through recent. Um, and it wasn't the best market to trade. But lately, as I see the volatility come back in the market, and I actually I do better in down markets for some reason. Um, as purely as a trader, and, and obviously the market's taken a hit in the last two to three months. And so I refuse to trade, because if you trade, you need to be in it full-time, otherwise you're gonna get wrecked one of these days. With that said, I did put on a small option position recently, and like kinda got that feel back again. I'm like, oh, this is fun. It was a tiny amount of money, a tiny amount of, of, of options. But it was just something about like, just watching the action in the market over the couple in the last couple of weeks, and, and putting on a very small position that was, it, it's, not dangerous at all. I mean, it, it's like it's such a small amount of money, right? But it, at least I got that kind of a, my fix. In the sense. jolt, yeah. <laughs> so, I, so you moved into the restaurant world, and I have a, uh, an acquaintance who, who uh, you know, a celebrity chef once said to him, and I remember him saying this. You know, just simply said, "Don't invest in restaurants," which was interesting. Okay. This guy's a pretty successful celebrity chef. Um, you made an investment in Tender Greens that, you know, from what I read, seems to have, have fueled. The insight that led you to to, to Chow Now, um, what led you to become, especially as someone who really like understood financials, what 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 led you to become the founding investor of Tender Greens, which which now is like thirty or forty locations. Yeah, it's right? about twenty five right okay. now. But uh, yeah, I mean that that's like a lot of things in life. That's partially luck. Uh, you know, we we invested, family and I, a decade ago in two thousand six. Um, and we just sold some of our shares to Danny Meyer. Oh, really? And I would have never dreamt that that was ever going to be a potential outcome. Um, that This tiny little one-location restaurant in Culver City where the three founders were making mashed potatoes behind the counter when my mom walked in and you know, kind of fell in love with the place and, wow. and got me into it. Um, to, to fast forward to kind of where they are these days and the fact that Danny Meyer, this is the first investment he's ever made outside of his uh, kind of um, home-built restaurant groups is pretty insane. 
Um, that was, again, it was, the fair amount was luck. It was, I, I was living here in New York. I was working at Lehman. And family, I come from a middle-class family. Don't have a ton of money, but not broke either. Uh, and so we had to make a few small investments here and there. I owned just a couple of tiny apartment buildings in L.A. and got lucky and sold those in 2005 or 2006. And then we're not talking about a whole lot of money. Um, but the money we did get out of that, we were looking and real estate didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Just the kind of the deals that we we're looking at, the returns just didn't look nearly as good as they did a few years prior. And so my mom walked into this restaurant for the first day that they had opened in Culver City. And she's like, these these three founders seem like they're onto something. And the three founders have amazing pedigree. They kind of come out of hotel management, restaurant management. Um, they weren't this kind of this kind of. It wasn't a passion project. I mean, in a sense, it was uh, like most startups, but they were very experienced individuals. And so she calls me up and she goes, oh, I want to invest in a restaurant. Like, we have this money. What do you think? And because I work in finance, like, you know, they relied on me to, to give my opinion. And I'm like, you're out of your mind. And I was pictured it was this kind of like trendy sit down restaurant that you know, comes and goes in 18 months. And she sent me the business plan. and It was very impressive. It was about 50 pages long, very detailed, very thought out. Again, the three founders had very impressive backgrounds. Said okay, well we can put a little amount and see what happens, and and we did and lines out the door within months and doing very well and they were ready to open their second location and they were raising more money. At that point, we felt very good about things and put more money in and I think we made about four or five investments in the first couple of years. It's um, it's kind of funny to see now that I'm where I sit and talking to VCs and seeing investors chase down these so-called hot deals. Because this was not a hot mm-hmm. deal at all. One of our investments, it took the, the company months and months and months to raise probably like two or three million. I forget the exact amount. And so over the course of that time, they like opened two more locations. Sales had jumped quite a bit. And so the valuation was like insanely cheap for where the business had come. And so it made it very easy to, to invest more and more money into it um, from that standpoint. Hmm. Um, and it, it's kind of amazing what, what hot deals that fizzle out right a year later and you're like oh you know every vc every investor is trying to get into the this was so far the opposite and the uh, the outcome has been much better than most you know and in market speaking it's it's an inefficient market welcome to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it this is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So, you know, so many restaurant, like so many restaurant investors, and like I've seen them myself, just kind of invest in a restaurant because they, they kind of want to say, like, I invest in that restaurant, yeah. like go and have their regular booth or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious, like, how hands-on you were because it seems like you weren't the guy who, who wanted to have his booth, but were just, um, you know, really, really believed in this, uh, in this product. And yet... It, from what I read, it seems like also your your experience at Tender Greens led to the insights that fueled Chow now. And so, you know, were you were you were you one step short of like in there with the mashed potatoes yourself? Or no, uh, so I, I was never that close to the <laughs> operations. Thing, and thank God, so one step short. <laughs> yeah, um, but I got to know the, the three guys pretty well. Mainly two of the three founders and. Um, help them because uh, again one of these rounds just took a little longer to, to close and so I'd come out of finance and use some investors and, and, and that helped him in one of the rounds raise a little bit of money and so I just got to know the business better and better 
Um, and I was always a geek. I mean, I mentioned back in high school, I love the market, but I also love tech. And this is the late nineties when I was going through high school. And so even back then I had started a, a com that went absolutely nowhere, but it was carupgrids.com and we sold aftermarket car parts and mufflers and things like that. And it was fun and you know, had it set up and the website set up, but it didn't do anything. That isn't on your LinkedIn. I would have asked about that for sure. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was not a success. But <laughs> we'll come back to that yeah, if we have time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I was, uh, that, you know, it got me hooked on, on tech and uh, at the time e-commerce and all these other things. And, and so even when I would trade and worked at Lehman on my personal side, um, you know, I'd, I'd always tracked tech companies. So, for example, when like Palm came out with the the pre, and I think that was 2007 or 2008, and they announced it at CES, and the stock Palm stock, which had been beaten up, and everyone's just kind of forgot about Palm, went from three bucks to eighteen bucks, and so provided this opportunity to trade it and trade options around it. So I got to know that story well. I knew the executives who that were pulled out of Apple to start or kind of relaunch Palm and the pre and the deal that they had with Sprint, which is exclusive. Like I knew that story inside and out and then I could put option positions around it. But I would read uh, at the time, TechCrunch I still read, but um, uh, Engadget, which was big back then, obviously now it's The Verge and, and other sites that are, have since come around. Um, so I, even though I worked in finance and, and did what I was doing at Lehman, I always loved tech. So when it came time to pay attention to what Tender Greens was doing and the power of online ordering and seeing their fast casual group. And they're usually located next to other national fast casual players like a Chipotle. And Chipotle is coming out with mobile apps now in 2009 and Domino's is coming out with theirs and Papa John's and, and every other uh, either fast food company or fast casual company on the national scale. Local groups and independent restaurants didn't have an option. Their option was Grubhub, which is really a marketplace and marketplaces are good for new customer acquisition but they're not good for repeat business and if you know the the dynamics of takeout within a restaurant the majority of orders to go are from repeat customers so you probably here in the office probably have a salad place downstairs next to your home you probably have a pizzeria you know everyone has their go-to for different cuisine types and so marketplaces didn't make sense to be used in that way and so tender greens basically had two options uh, that I saw them kind of weigh and, and go through. One was to use a local shop, development shop in LA, and build out their online ordering system and website ordering. Uh, option two was to go with Grubhub or 24 of any of the other marketplaces, in which case you're offloading your entire takeout business to a third party who's selling them back to you every time you, you they place an order and they're taking their 10 to 25% cut. And so that, that kind of sucks. But the one benefit is that you can get up and running taking orders very quickly with no upfront cost. So the general kind of thesis for Chan now is, well, how'd you combine the best of both worlds where each restaurant gets their own system, it's on their website, they get their own mobile apps, they get their customer database, the CRM, they own the relationship with the customer and they don't have to pay commission on every order. It's software, they pay a monthly fee for the software, they can pick and choose the features that they want to use, but it's still their system, their customers branded to them. And that was just the kind of general premise for, for China. And, and the idea came around watching Tender Greens and the system that they, they spent quite a bit of money to develop, um, which they, you know, frankly, because they spent the money still use. Um, and you know, it's fine, but it was like, well, you spent so much money for a system that's not that mm. great. Um, and, and you've raised at this point millions of dollars and I forgot how many locations they had 2009, I'm gonna say four or five, six locations. You know, they're, they're in much stronger position than your local independent restaurant. Right, right. Yeah. 
I, I, I read, and I, I, these are my words because I, I think I'm, I'm definitely you know going to be a little dramatic here. But I read you kind of went deep undercover for uh, <laughs> <laughs> as you. I'm imagining with like the fake nose and mustache and glasses uh, <laughs> uh, as you were like trying to figure out whether the market wanted Chow now. Tell us about the process of 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 doing that market research and how it became so validating. Yeah. So. You know, like most people, we we all have ideas, some good, not some not so good, and and so I thought it was a, a brilliant idea. My co-founder Eric thought it was a great idea as well, and we hadn't raised much money. I think we each pulled in a couple thousand dollars to to kind of get something going and, and you know, start the company. Um, and before we invested more of our time and money and effort into the the, the company as a whole, we decided let's make up this fake product which was essentially Chow Now, go to Kinko's, which obviously is now FedEx, and and print out flyers for this fictional product that basically has all the features that Chow Now has for the most part today and, and it had at launch. And instead of trying to sell it in LA, where which was gonna be a kind of our bread and butter place to launch because we're based in LA, let's drive a few hours north, drove to Santa Barbara, and we spent three days, a long weekend, just going door to door to every restaurant in Santa Barbara we could, trying to sell this fictional product up to the point where, you know, we obviously wouldn't take their money, but basically up to the point of them saying, yes, sign me up. And we probably hit, I think about 60 or so restaurants in the course of a couple of days. And we had enough people either trying to sign it on the spot or saying, hey, I'm very interested, follow up with me shortly, that we're like, okay, we're on to something. There, there's a market for this. And so from that standpoint, we then went and raised some money and, and got, got things going. Was there anyone who was was like, oh, okay, but no, but I actually, I, I, yeah, I, I want, it. want yeah, this yeah, now. Here's like, my check. Yeah. Um, we were pretty close. I don't remember exactly, but we we're, were pretty darn close to the, the actual sale. Did anyone actually come on board as soon as you launched? Like, were you able to keep those, keep those, you know, yeah. corner of the market in Santa Barbara on, on launch day? <laughs> no. So, I actually, that's a good question. I don't think we work with one of those restaurants. That's interesting. Um, by the time we actually had raised the money, which took a while, built the original team, built the original product, and then brought it to market. We're talking another year and change later. So they right. we were long forgotten at that point. Right. Um, obviously, there was interest, so we probably should go back and, and try to go after them. <laughs> Put a sales move, yeah, sales yeah. like around Santa Barbara. Yeah, totally. Uh, so, I, it's, it, you, I mean, speaking of Santa Barbara, speaking of L.A., and, I, you know, you'll note the cheekiness of the question, but, like, you know, you, you launched in L.A., and aren't aren't you kind of obliged to launch in, in San Francisco if you're going to be, uh, you know, a, a tech company, I mean, let, let alone in California, anywhere? Um, talk about talk about the experience of launching in yeah. L.A. and whether that was beneficial or not yeah so we we intentionally avoided two markets San Francisco being one New York being the other uh, mainly because San Francisco everyone and their brother is selling something to some kind of startup some kind of gimmick something to, to local businesses and, and to restaurants whether it's you know online ordering in our case but it could be loyalty it could be daily deals it, it, everyday restaurants and small businesses in San Francisco are getting hit up by startups and this has been going on for years and years and years so breaking through that noise is very difficult and also very expensive. And, and the cost of having a salesperson and someone in San Francisco is also very expensive given the, the cost of, of living there. So we intentionally avoided San Francisco and let all these other startups sell and whatever they are to local businesses kind of fight over it, um, which is different than today. We've actually got quite a bit of inbound interest over the years. Restaurants in San Francisco now have a decent client base there. The other market was New York and basically avoid New York because there's a dynamic here where Seamless is so strong Mm. It, they don't have that kind of foothold on any other market outside of New York. And so we also, also cost of living, cost of putting someone here in New York 
it didn't make sense in the early days when we didn't have a lot of resources. So we intentionally avoided New York as well. We would never sell into restaurants. We've no pro- never proactively reach out to restaurants here in New York. But one by one, they would hear about us and reach out. And now New York's our second biggest market. Hmm. Um, and we only recently put sales rep here. Um, it, it was years before we actually put one here. It was there's such a hatred towards seamless from restaurants here in the city. Really? That as soon as the restaurants started finding out that, hey, there's a way I can bypass seamless and get tools where I don't have to pay commission and I can own the customer and this and that. And, you know, it, it's a hundred bucks a month or 150 bucks a month versus, you know, potentially thousands that they pay to seamless. Um, they one by one started calling us up, hitting us up on the website. And now we have, I don't know how many accounts we have here, a couple hundred. Maybe more. You, you're, mentioned, you're talking about this mostly from like a uh, client acquisition perspective. What about just from running a business? You know, is it, is it better to be running a business in in LA for some reason? Um, I mean, you so you kind of you mentioned already, like you know, because the real estate's a little less. Yeah. You know, you kind of have a lower um, you know ex- salary expectations, I guess, for some for some staff. But is there anything else that you're like, thank God I was in LA for that? Yeah. Well, one, my just my personal base is there. I grew up in LA, family's there, friends are there. And, and that's helpful in the early days when you kind of throw everything sure. aside, not taking salary. I mean, you just kind of need help and support. And, you know, sometimes it's just a pat on the back when things aren't going your way. Uh, and so having that in LA definitely helped. The other thing is the tech scene in LA has come a long way and we benefited from that. We uh, So we went through an accelerator called Launchpad LA, which is no longer around. And we, we basically were invited to join three accelerators without applying to any one of them. And it was because it was just partly, t- or a big part of it was timing, if, if not the entire thing was timing, where we had at that point raised three or $400,000. We had a product in beta. We had a team of five or six. And so we were further along than most companies entering an accelerator. And so all within a month, three accelerators, it was Launchpad LA, it was Amplify LA, which is still around and doing well, and Mucker Lab, which is also still around and doing well all launched and they're all looking to fill up their first classes of, of uh, startups. And so they're just, I wouldn't say they're desperate, but they're fairly desperate to get good startups in the door who had made some progress, who'd shown that they could raise money, that shown that they could start to build a product and we fit that profile. And so one by one they heard that the other one had asked us to join theirs and they're like, well, hey, if, if you know, if Amplify is gonna you know, accept Chana, we should take a look. And then you know, I had coffee with the guys at Mucker Lab and they're like, hey, you should join ours. And all of a sudden, we had three, and we, you know, we had some leverage over the terms, right? Without applying to anyone, uh, and, and that was purely that moment in time. Um, the, the market shifted quite a bit, um, but definitely got a lot of support out of that. We we ultimately chose Launchpad LA. What, what, did, what did yeah? What did you get out of, out of the out of the accelerator? What was the experience like? What were you before and after? We got, I mean, is a vague answer. Uh, we got a lot, <laughs> um, but if I was to pinpoint one thing that we really got was one, a network of other people doing the same thing, feeling the pain, raising money, giving feedback, and feedback on the pitch, on the deck, on everything else that goes into it. And then probably the most important thing is they introduced us to Upfront Ventures, which at the time was GRP and since rebranded and, and grown in, in a big way into Upfront Ventures, who's our, our largest investor at this point in the letter Series A. And that came through Launchpad LA. And Upfront's been hugely supportive. Um, you know, a lot give those guys a lot of credit, and they've been very helpful along the way. And that came through Launchpad LA. So you go through the, through through Launchpad LA. You, you, did you officially launch? You officially launched after like a, like when? 
we, live after that? We launched beta in LA, uh, in Venice, where we were based. And then um, we officially launched kind of publicly at the National Restaurant Show in Chicago, which is held every May in Chicago in May of 2012. So we're coming up on our four-year anniversary from product launch. And yeah. what what is Chow Now on, on, on day one? How many people... How many clients? How much runway did you have? How many were you like? This has got to work in oh, a, a year. This is going to work in you know, oh, six I months. Mean, we we had a convertible note that we just left open and raised as much as we could on that thing and take check sizes anywhere from twenty five to hundred k at a time. Um, and and that sounds fast. It took a year or so to, to raise our first round, which is roughly about a million dollar round. So you got a million dollars in the bank when you on the day you moved out of beta. Oh no no no. We had a. Uh, uh, it's, it's trying to think. We originally raised seventy five thousand from friends and family, okay. and we used that to hire an engineer. We did have the benefit, and still do have the benefit, but really he was very impactful. The early on, a guy named Jim Benedetto, and Jim uh, was VP of tech at MySpace, and so he'd grown the, the tech team there and, and helped lead the tech team. Um, when MySpace was sold to Fox, he left, and he had just, with a couple other guys from MySpace, started another company called Gravity, which has since been sold to, to AOL. And so he's very successful, a great track record, obviously he knows technology very well. And so he had just raised 10 million with his co-founders for Gravity, so he couldn't do anything with us, but he could advise. And so he was gave us quite a bit of insight, both on the tech side, on the engineers that we hired. He helped uh, on the first one or two, interview them, make sure we were hiring the right guys. And then, too, on the fundraising, he would, you know, given that he just raised $10 million, it was obviously much easier when you come out of MySpace and sold a company right. for hundreds of millions of dollars uh, than, than my background. Um, but he did give us some help on the, hey, this is how to talk to VCs and, and other folks within the, the tech space. Right. Okay. And but so and let me get back. I, I'm, uh, I'm an expert asking five questions at once. <laughs> on day one, you know, in terms of people or clients, yeah, like day was, one's really just my co-founder Eric and myself and really? a few thousand dollars that we put into a bank account. Right. It was, it was slow going. It was, it it was all about hitting very small milestones, and then starting to accelerate those milestones. So so milestone one was raise seventy five thousand. Milestone two was hire a local shop to help us build a prototype use that prototype, so that's milestone. I'm just kind of making the num- numbers up, but milestone right. two. Milestone three is use that prototype, get into a restaurant. Milestone four is actually now get a, an investor to pay attention because we, now we have a product they can play around with and we have an actual client. And so, and then like, and then Launchpad comes around and like it's all these tiny little milestones. Right. And we'd raised, you know, 75,000 and then there 75,000 and I think the first year we'd run out of money two or three times. Now the number, our burn was super low, so like we could run out of money and be okay, and then find another investor to, to help us keep right. keep the thing alive. My apologies. What I mean is, on on day one, um, coming out of the accelerator, oh. where where are you? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, I'll I'll consider day one our launch of the NRA show, uh, okay. which was kind of the same time. It was we were coming out of Launchpad LA, and so we came out of Launchpad right around spring, almost summer of of 2012, and and again the show at the NRA show is. Uh, May of 2012, and we were five or six at that point. Um, two engineers, two salespeople, myself, who I guess is also a salesperson um, with a different kind of hat, but salesperson nonetheless. Right. And Eric, my co-founder, who's also doing a little bit of everything, wearing multiple hats, including selling. Right. And 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 you know, I've talked to other tech company co-founder founders who've said 
like, oh boy, I, I, when I look back, I can't believe what our service was and how we got off the ground. I mean, does your service, to, does what Chow now offers today stand up well compared to what you really went to market with? It's evolved a tremendous amount. Um, even little features that have big impacts, so Apple Pay, for example. So on our mobile apps, 25% of all orders use Apple Pay. Uh, which is kind of insane to think that Apple Pay barely existed a year and a half ago. That is crazy. Wow. And that all these things had to align, these massive institutions, the banks, the credit card processors, Apple, and all, all these other folks had to work together to bring this to market. And then when they did, got it launched so quickly, and we were able to, to install in the apps, and we were the first ordering company to install Apple Pay. And, and it, it's done us, I mean, uh, and the numbers that we see uh, and the conversion numbers and everything from Apple Pay. And so things are coming around so quickly that they didn't even exist when we launched originally. Um, our recent partner uh, partnership with Uber, for example, and, and what we're doing and the way we're able to plug in on-demand delivery to all our restaurant clients in a very channel kind of way, meaning you know everything happens behind the scenes. Right. And so we don't get in the way of the customer in the restaurant. We assign the courier after the fact. It's like buying something on Amazon. It just shows up and you don't know who's actually gonna bring it to you, but you know it's gonna get to you. Very much the same way. Um, and so being a launch partner on Uber Rush, um, again, was something that came about very quickly and didn't exist even a year ago in, in the form that it exists today. So right. it's, it's, it's almost hard to imagine kind of what's coming next because it's coming so quickly. Right. That's interesting. So, yeah. Hard to imagine yeah. what's coming next because it's coming so quickly yeah. is, is uh, God, it should be a tagline for a good tech show. <laughs> uh, so you, you quickly got like a couple hundred restaurants on board, and now you have like 3,500? Is, is that, is yeah, that? so the, the NRA show, I keep saying NRA, everyone probably thinks guns yeah. and rifles. <laughs> it's, it's restaurants. Yeah. Um, it's, we, we spent a, a fair amount of money, a lot of money compared to what we had back then. We didn't have, at that time, I, I'm going to guess we maybe had $50,000 in the bank, maybe a little bit more, but we didn't have a lot of money. And we probably spent about 10000 of that at the NRA show where we took a booth, we took the entire team out, we set up demo stations and we would just sell to whoever walked by the booth to the point where we were almost giving the product away. You know, it's one of the things, sign up here and you get six months of free service. Mm -hmm. So there's the, the zero risk. And when you give things away at a trade show, people tend to grab them. They'll grab anything that you give away. You give away koozies, you give away frisbees, t-shirts. People just want free stuff. And so we gave essentially free service. There's a price tag associated with it, but we basically waived just about all the prices. And so what it did is it got that show, attracts restaurants from all over the, the US, but primarily from about 10 states, kind of surrounding Illinois, so mainly the Midwest. And we got probably about 100 or so restaurants over the course of four days signing up. And these guys, these restaurants are spread out throughout the Midwest. And longer term, a lot of them churned because it was just the value proposition of like giving something away for free. People don't value it a lot. Right. But in the short term, over the, the next few months after the show, we got usage data. We got people using the product. We understood how restaurants, what they needed, and it allowed us to find you the products. It also got us traction, which then helped us go on and raise our Series A. Gotcha. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it this is smart people should build things the venture for america podcast was the the process i mean things have happened so quickly like was it just complete 
and I mean this in a, in a way that not not to be critical. I mean, you know, it's, it's just inevitably growth like that is is, is is can be chaotic. Or was it somehow manageable? Um, you know, do you feel like God? I, I just I can't fight this fire. I don't have enough, enough uh, you know water to fight this fire at times. We, even though it felt like it was coming very quick, and in a sense it was, we almost intentionally kept our sales team small partially because of resources, but partially because we'd seen so many companies selling products into the local space, to get a glimmer of hope, go out, raise 10, 20, $30 million on their Series A or Series B, because, hey, look at how great things are going here in this one very specific market and this one very specific clientele, right. and say, oh, we could sell this to a million plus clients across the entire US, and some VC falling for it, raising some insane amount of money, using that to build an army, and then have all the customers that they sign up over the course of a year and thousands and thousands of merchants churn off because the product just didn't live up to the hype and to what they're selling. And uh, there's some number of examples that I just won't give here. Cause, you know. I want to hear them offline. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, even if you think about the daily deals, it's just one category. I mean, right. just think about daily deals right. and how many companies came around promising yeah. daily deals after Groupon yeah. and how many of them disappeared. Yeah. Um, number of companies in the loyalty space you know, promising loyalty and it's going to drive your business, this and that. Right. You know, a lot of them are gone or, or just kind of scraping by. Um, and so we'd kind of witnessed a number of these various categories come and go pretty quickly and decided, hey, we need to make sure that the product's perfect churns low, restaurants are getting the value that they want out of it. And so we continue to add features. We we launched originally with only a widget for restaurant websites so they could take orders off their website and a Facebook app that they could take orders off their Facebook page. A year later, we launched iPhone apps so each restaurant can get their own iPhone app. So now they have a few different channels that they can take orders from. A year later, we launched Android uh, apps so now every restaurant can get their own Android app in addition to their iPhone app. And then we continue to add features. We integrated with Yelp. We added Apple Pay, Android Pay, a number of other things. Um, and we also continue to build out our support team. And we also built an in-house marketing agency that would help restaurants not only get the tools, the tech tools, but also learn how to use them, market it, and use all this customer data, the CRM data that just is inherent into online ordering and how to kind of leverage that. And so this is what we've been building over the last four years. And so I um, forgot where I was going with this. <laughs> but, <laughs> so but, I think, I, what, where, yeah, where were we? I don't oh, know. oh, the growth, growth. Oh, yeah. growth, yeah, man, man, yeah. that's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so we... Um, I was into it, man. I was just listening. <laughs> um, it's going on in tangent. Um, and so our sales team was only about five or six sales reps for the first two, two years and change. Right. And so we were adding anywhere from 50 to 100 accounts a month. Um, we intentionally kind of kept it slow. We understood how to, to sell the pitch and everything else. Then we felt very good about things. Churn was right around 1% a month, which in the local space is, is very low. Um, and, and it remains there, which is fantastic and something we watch closely. And at that point, we raised more essentially growth capital um, in the form of a, a Series A. Uh, and from there, we went on and, and uh, built out the sales team. We took the sales team from five folks to roughly about 35. And right now, it's about 30 people. On the sales team. On a personal level, how are you managing that growth? Are you, are you, you know, twenty hours a day at at, at the office, or missing, you know, family functions, or are you yeah, able to kind of keep it stable and still get some of your own time? No, it's not stable at all. It's uh, <laughs> it's, al- it's always checking the phone. It's it's right. it's. I'm addicted to check my phone every minute, just like most people are. You know, I go to bed, look at my phone. I wake up, look at my phone. It's it's. It's one thing I look forward to getting better at is not checking my phone and checking emails and responding. And, and now there's Slack and we use Slack just like just every other startup. You know, there, there's communication is just so rapid these days that you close up 
your laptop, put your phone away, you open it up an hour or two later and just a ton of messages are flooded in. So you never can really put it away, um, which yeah, I would say sucks, but I'm addicted to it as well. It makes me happy. So, um, you know, it, it's probably not the worst thing, but one day I'd, I'd look forward to kind of slowing life down a little bit. Oh, I, 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 <laughs> I was joking around about it. I'm sure people who listen to the podcast regularly have heard me say this before, but to me, my dream of, of you know, if I were to sell my company, which I'm not necessarily dreaming of, but yeah. if I were, it has nothing to do with money and it has everything to do with the fact that I could just put my phone away. Yeah. I, it oh, wouldn't be intruding in my life. Oh, that's, that's absolutely it. And, and uh, it's my own fault. I mean, I can't, I can't, yeah. <laughs> I, I, can't I can't be responsible with it, uh, with the phone. So, uh, and is your family understanding of this? Are they like, are they just like, would you just put that thing down? Yeah. So, so my girlfriend who I live with, um, also worked at a startup. We actually met when she was working at the startup, and she now runs her own business. So she very much has lived the, a similar life as well. Right. So she understands for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So, you, I mean, you mentioned the process of, of, uh, of raising funds. Um, I think you're $17.5 million total now. Am I, am I getting the right? Yeah, right, right. Yep, pretty close. So I, I'm always curious about that the number that people pick, you know, like a $10 million Series B, why not 20, why not five? And, you know, like what what's the idea behind the funds? Where does, when, where does, Ten get you? What are you? What are you pitching? Saying this is what we're going to do with this money? Yeah, it's, it's not the tra- traditional way of, of raising venture capital. Um, partially because you know, me for so for someone who's raised seventeen million, I don't feel like I'm very good at raising money, which is <laughs> sounds weird. Why is that? Um, I don't know. I you know, it, it's obviously been able to to raise quite a bit of money. The cap table has quite a few names on it. Has a lot of VCs on it. So definitely got people into it. Now our numbers sell, I uh, should say sell themselves. Um, it's not quite the case, but like it, it's much easier raising money today than it was early on. I like to blame the fact that I was a first time founder without a tech background. So that was the reason that was harder. And, and I think there's some truth to that. Right. You know, if, if again, Jim Benedetto, who's mentioned earlier as our advisor, <clears throat> obviously a great CTO, tech background, startup background proven two exits under his belt you know the guy can go and raise another you know 10 million with a powerpoint slide um i i hopefully think i'm getting there as as my track record kind of continues to build out and the company continues to hit these milestones but it did it was a slog raising money and and again I, i do think i'm better at it but i don't think i'm good at it and and so so now I'll, now I'll get you back on track with my first question, which is, why ten million dollars? What, what what did you want to do with it? Yeah, so it, it so our Series A was actually over the course of three or so extensions. So we originally had our Series A, which was in the end of twenty twelve, the original Series A, which was probably like two million or three. I think it was like a three million dollars Series A, and then we added a, a three million a year later, and basically a year later we added another. I'm, again, the number is mixed up, but another six or seven million. Partially because we came across new investors who wanted in, but we weren't quite ready to, to do another true Series B. Um, the company just didn't feel like it was in a great position. It, it was growing, things were getting better, but it, you need to be in an awesome position to go out and raise a Series B. And it wasn't like we were in a bad position, but where we wanted the numbers to shake out. And again, it kind of gets back to you see these companies raise insane amounts of money prematurely and spend the money very quickly and have very little to show for it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want that to happen as well. So that, that was a big piece of it. 
And even when we raise our next round of funding, it'll be relatively a fair amount of money. But compared to some of these other rounds that are getting done that are just insane amounts of money, um, it won't it won't be up there. And we're okay with that. It seems like uh, you had a tiger by the tail from the start, Chris. But there had to have been some missteps. What do you wish you had done better or differently? Yeah, so... So, made many mistakes and probably make a mistake on a daily basis. Um, and, and I'm not sure if this was a mistake. It was a mistake from timing. Um, we, we've we basically hired three VPs of sales over the course of the company. The first, and, and frankly friends with all of them still. Uh, the first was a guy, uh, a guy named John Martin, who was the national director of sales at OpenTable. He was the first sales guy at OpenTable in the late 90s and grew to run uh, national sales there, director of national sales and running a team of 70 or 80 sales reps. And he was looking to get back into the startup. And so he'd come from fairly large team of sales reps that he ran, huge budget, assistant, you know, all these nice perks that come along with getting to that stage in, in your career and stage of a company. And he was ready to kind of get back into working at a startup. But he was based in the Bay Area, where he still is. And obviously we're in LA. And so all I heard is you need big names that are gonna help you raise money, these proven folks, um, great backgrounds. And we're like, doesn't get better than this, national director of sales from, from OpenTable. But the timing was wrong. He was our first sales guy that we hired. I don't think he loved getting back into the field, not having the resources, not having marketing collateral. He had to do all of that. What he did do is he did bring someone over from OpenTable who did a great job. And so very quickly we realized that John, and, and John came to us and said the same thing. He's like, you know, this, there's something romantic about joining a startup again and doing that. It's very different when you live it day to day. Mm. And I'm just not really ready for it. Um, I'd prefer to be an advisor. And at that point, we're agreed as well. And That's good for him. Um, and so within a couple of months, he was transitioned to advisor. He'd brought in this other guy who we made as our kind of lead sales guy and, and eventually director of sales. So that was mistake number one. Mistake number two, VP of sales. Um, and again, mistake's probably the wrong word to use, but I, know, I can't think of a better word. Um, <laughs> and I'll, uh, work, I'll work on the vocab. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh, so the other one is the, the guy that you referenced in the press release, Nick Kellemeyer. Nick's awesome. I spoke to Nick yesterday. He's, he's still an advisor. Nick was the VP of sales at Grubhub. He hmm. was the number five employee there. Uh, I don't know if he was the first sales guy, but he was probably the first, one of two uh, sales guys at the time. And then grew the sales team there, and, and you, know, you probably know the track record of, of Grubhub. Obviously, publicly traded, work with thirty thousand restaurants, you know, a, a big business. And he built the sales arm of that almost from nothing. Um, he joined pre-funding, and I think they had a hundred locations, and now they again have something like thirty thousand. And a lot of that was under his leadership. And he was there until about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. And so another big name hire. He lived in Chicago, where Grubhub is based. Um, but he said, oh, "I want to move out to California." Um, and he started looking for houses in LA. Ultimately, he found his house in San Diego, and we need someone in LA to run the sales team. And so, you know, we had fairly honest, direct conversation. Said, "Well, you know, again, love to have you here, but um, but you need to be in LA." And it's obviously, found this house that he loves and family and other reasons to be in San Diego. And so he, um, we moved him to an advisor there shortly after. We then transitioned and brought on a VP of sales from Living Social. It's another big mm. name. I mean, you're talking about national director of OpenTable, VP of sales at Grubhub, and VP of sales at Living Social. So, you know, pretty great pedigree from all three. Um, Ken's fantastic as well. 
Um, but I think just the timing was wrong. Um, the stage that we were at, the size of the team, and it just wasn't a great fit for kind of where we were. Um, and so we promoted a guy who now leads our sales team, Drew Woodcock, who started as a senior sales rep. Uh, and then we promote him over a year later to director of sales. And now he's our VP of sales. And it's just a natural fit. And, and one thing that a number of these guys had said is, hey, your best bet is doing w- what I did. What I was that young guy. I was hungry. I was unproven. But I understood the way things work. And I wanted to get to the next level. And that's how I did. So Nick did that at, at Grubhub. He wasn't a VP of sales prior. He just was a very hungry sales guy who has the brain to lead sales and manage people. Um, and Drew has that in him. And we always sense that Drew had it in him, but he just didn't feel ready to do it. And over the course of two years of, of putting people and sales reps above Drew, he was getting better and reading more and you know, blogs and podcasts and doing everything else to get better and learning how to manage people and everything else. And so we kind of gave him a little bit, a small bite of the apple. And then I think it was probably about four months ago, uh, we handed the keys over t- to Drew. And And so in terms of your responsibilities at this point, um, what do you have and what have you given up? Um, good question. I mean, I, I obviously have my hands in, in just about everything. I'm less involved in sales for the most part these days. That said, I still occasionally go out and, and sell. And I think it's important for me to talk to restaurants and get out there. And even while I'm here in New York for the week, meeting with a few restaurants, um, just because I think it's important to, to know what they're saying, um, to still know how to sell the product, um, to get feedback. And so I still occasionally get involved there. I also have a network of, of restaurants and restaurant owners and folks like that who get referred into me. Uh, so obviously I, I loop in the sales rep depending on where the restaurant's located. Um, but I'm probably a little less involved in sales than I used to be. Um, obviously not involved with engineering, I can't code, but I do love product. Started the company because I love product and wanted to build a very cool product. Uh, so I pay quite a bit of attention to product, um, probably annoy them a little bit too much, but <laughs> that's kind of where I focus on. And also what we call our restaurant success team. I, I don't have a lot of involvement there these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric, my co-founder, is currently running that team, doing an awesome job at it. And so it's like, it makes my life Le- easier. Leave him alone yeah, and yeah, let yeah, him do yeah. his thing well. Yeah. So, so, like, tech companies are so well known for lavish perks, you know, free food and dry cleaning and gyms. And I got, I mean, I walked through the Google headquarters yeah. in in, uh, in Chelsea, and it was it was blew my mind. Um, and maybe you have some of those, but uh, but you made headlines a few months back for offering a pretty interesting perk, which was student loan repayment. Which I, I think I'd rather have a student loan repayment than a free juice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, in fact, I both. Why not? Um, like, pretty remarkably progressive step. Like, you, you know, you know, to have a pretty young team. Um, my question is: Have your have your team members been taking you up on that? Have they, does it does it sound great? Or are they all are, are you do you have a dozen people who are like yes? I will put some money towards. I think it's like a matching contribution. So it's I'll put small, some, but it is. Yeah, we match up to a certain point. Uh, currently, I think we cap out about five hundred, and we, we do want to take that up to a thousand this year. Still uh, unusual and generous. So I wouldn't. Under, I'm not. I'm not letting you undersell that. I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> it's. Yeah. One, one, one of my businesses is is, is uh, M7 Financial, and we're, we're a student loan advisor. So um, it's one of our four brands. And so it, this is close to my heart, I should say, full yeah. disclosure. Yeah, it's, um, you know, student debt is, in a lot of, for a lot of people, a, a problem. It's terrible. Yeah, and, and so we want to help fix that. And the other thing, we're, we're getting some of our employees asking about 401ks. And it's, it's not that hard or not that expensive to roll out a 401k 
make it pretty easy these days. Um, and so the, the kind of cost benefit is there. But as we were thinking about it and looking at it and looking at the, our employees and, and the average employee, I don't know the exact number, I'm going to say late 20s, the company, most people at our company carry some level of student debt. And so it seemed to make a lot more sense to help them pay down their debt than pay for retirement. And then I don't want to dismiss saving for retirement by any means. But when you carry you know, hundreds, if not thousands, or tens of thousands of dollars in, in student debt, how can we help that? And so all the programs that we have, and, and we have quite a few, the underlying program, we want it to somehow benefit the team. Because we think if we benefit everyone on an individual basis, then the team benefits. And, and so you have a lot of the cliche stuff that startups give away, snacks and things like that. And you know, I don't think anyone's ever left a company because they didn't have snacks. Right. And if they did, you don't want that employee anyway. Um, that said, we still have snacks. They'd be leaving my company. We don't yeah. have snacks. <laughs> but but you know, people want to grow at whatever they're doing, and they feel like they, they want to have some kind of they, some passion for it. Um, at least the employees that you want on your team, and they want to feel like they're every year getting better at something and working towards something else, whether it's a personal goal, a company goal, or something combined. And so we have a few different programs that are. To, again, to benefit everyone, myself included. So we have a mentorship program that we're rolling out where we team up people on the company um, with various mentors. I actually took this from HubSpot. I heard uh, CTO or CMO at HubSpot talking about the program that they do there. Hmm. And they even have, a, they allocate some shares to give away to mentors. So if you're on the marketing team, for example, and you want to go out and you want to team up with a mentor and, and you don't want to you know, personally cut them a check, HubSpot will give them some shares hmm. in return for time. And so we want to do something very similar. So we're rolling that out now. Uh, we have a speaker series where we pull in some successful, interesting people. We just had a guy named Alan Henricks, who um, is publicly not well known, but privately, privately within kind of the, the Bay Area is well known. He uh, CFO of two companies. He was a CFO uh, that went public. They took public. He was a CFO of Pure Digital, which he helped sell for six hundred million. Uh, he's led four Sequoia companies as CFO. I mean, he's he's on the board of, I think, three or four companies, including he heads up the audit committee at Roku currently. So just a really impressive guy. He's built this career. He started his career as VP of finance at Atari back in the day. Like, it's just like wow. it's just like a guy that's under the radar. But like when you get to know him, it's just incredible. Um, I mean, it's so smart. You know, top of his class at MIT and wow. it's like all this stuff. I mean, it's, I could go on and about Alan. Anyway, he came in and talked to the team and answered questions and, and things like that. So we do that. Uh, we have a book club where we sit around and read books that are related to kind of startups, management, uh, management and things like that. So the first book we read was uh, Ben Horowitz, The yeah. Hard Things. Yeah. We sat around and discussed that. Uh, and now we're on to another book as well. And so we do a book about every two months. But everything, the bottom line of what we want to do is how do we help the individual employee get better? And again, if everyone's getting better, the team's getting better as well. Uh, and so that speaks to the student debt, where obviously debt just in general causes stress. I mean, just right. whether you think about it daily or not, there's some level of stress and anxiety that comes off of it. So if we can help pay that down, it benefits our employee and thus benefits us as well. So it's right. it's partially self-serving, but it's definitely to the benefit of our, our employees. Yeah, I mean, when you when you said student debt, I sort of said, sort of lament like it's terrible. I mean, obviously some student debt is is helpful if it facilitates yep. some good educational opportunities, but there's like an epidemic in our society. Oh, right yeah. It's horrible. It's, it's, it's um, I, I, yeah, I don't want to get into yeah, politics, exactly. but I, I wish, to avoid I, it too. <laughs> I I wish uh, the, the politicians talk more about education student debt than they yeah, do currently. I just, I feel badly for, for, for universities
generously exclaiming it's horrible. I mean, yeah. I want to at least put the caveat that yeah. I believe it at some <laughs> level. But uh, we have we have an advisory company that, that tries to, to really help people avoid yeah. student debt. Um, so last question, which, which is, uh, it, it, you know, you like you're in this restaurant world at all times and you've got to understand you clearly understand all the moving parts can you go into a restaurant at, at, at this point and lose yourself in the experience or are you constantly thinking about how you know they can optimize their processes and their operations and you know, how they can use chow now to make it better I, I guess the the shorter version is can you enjoy a meal these days <laughs> No, uh, and the short answer is no. <laughs> I either go into a restaurant that we the work big with. Smile, yeah. No. Like, <laughs> like I was in a Grey Dog Cafe here. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah and so they're, they're a client, and so our tablets up there at the, the point of sale, and it's I'm sitting there talking to the two owners I'm friends with, and it's just ringing, and like I've seen tablets, our tablets ring in orders and the whole process for years, and I still get excited when I see the thing right. ringing and the employee handling it and someone coming in to get their food or the delivery guy taking it. Uh, so that's currently a client, and I still get excited about that, and then go into, obviously, people that aren't clients. And so our sales are up in L.A. Just, I think she likes me, but I think there's part of it, like, on a Saturday <laughs> night where I go out to to eat with friends, and I constantly hit her up. I'm like, this restaurant's perfect for us. you got to right. hit them up. Uh, and funny. then she'll contact them a week later. I actually saw, I saw on your uh, on your website. I think you had you had uh, peace food on there as well. Uh, yep. And uh, that's uh, that's another uh, yeah. We have some good ones too. Weekly order from from our oh yeah. Biweekly order for from my wife and I. So I'm sure okay. we, we've used the app without knowing. Okay. Yeah. The website that's that's us powering that um, here in City Hill Country. We work with okay. barbecue around, and chicken around, around the corner of my office. Here yeah. you're hitting up all, yeah. all the restaurants. I Calexico. Do you go to Calexico? I Mexican. There's about five locations where I went to that. Yeah. yeah. The name is in my head. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. It's there's one on. On, uh, on 7th and 26th or something? Yeah, I forget. There's, there's a couple in Brooklyn, <laughs> and then there's one, one or two on the east side somewhere. Yeah, I'm trying uh, to think of, okay, maybe I'm thinking of a different chain, but I've definitely seen it. So, yeah. Uh, so you got, you got a good stable. You're gonna, are you going to be uh, you can be just lodging uh, Seamless and Grubhub anytime soon here in New York? It's, um, I'll give them credit. They've built a strong network here, um, but there are now cracks in the system. It doesn't help them that their clients hate them. Right. It really doesn't. It's, <laughs> I mean, you go. It's fun. Okay, I got to yeah. interject for one second. It's funny because in one of the early articles I read with you, you were pretty aggressive about, about how uh, kind of a, you know difficult they are with their with their clients. Yeah. And I was like, I wonder if you've toned this down with time, and you have it. You're still got the real the real like. No, they're getting shadier and shadier. Wow. Look at um, if you want Business Insider and a couple pieces. So what Seamless now does, and, and I'm not making this up. This is documented by sure. a number of these publications and reporters. They changed their rating system that the consumer sees so when you log in and see four or five six stars based on the commission oh. and so business insider has cross-referenced uh ratings of you know some, i think they use a chinese restaurant that had like two stars on yelp horrible ratings on yelp you go on seamless and it gives them like five stars because they're paying a higher commission than wow. other restaurants and so they're very good there i mean there's endless stories um they, they constantly are buying AdWord keywords around restaurant names, even if the restaurant isn't on their network, to pull them into the customer into the network and then resell them another customer who's on their network with a similar name. I mean, there's countless examples of what Seamless and, and Grubhub do, uh, which which fuel the fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll watch this battle uh, unfold. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for, for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, happy to.
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.